I'd like to call us together today with, uh, with this thought where Jesus taught us that we ought to always pray and never quit. Always pray and never quit. And you know, um, he told us that because there are days when you just want to quit, right? And that's when we need one another, when we gather together and we lift each other up in the prayers of our worship and then invite the Spirit of God to meet us because we should always pray and never quit. And to those joining us today across the nation, around the world, through church online, social media, any of the connections you're making with us, we welcome you. Also, our campus is here in South Florida, Gables Campus, Kendall Campus. So excited for us to be together because we're going to tackle a tough topic today. This is a hard one. The question is, why does God allow pain and suffering? Right up the top, I got to tell you, this question is so much more than academic for me. This isn't simply a hypothetical one. This is one that I personally feel, and uh, I'm not alone in that. In fact, I mean, our entire community has felt most recently a reason to raise this question, pain and suffering. As uh, you, with me, reflect on the tragic um, circumstance that resulted in the death of one of our outstanding young people in our community, Lucas Alvarez that at the entire school, Westminster Christian School, has been feeling this loss keenly, that we have many people connected in the board, the faculty, the administration, the, the teaching staff, the families of, of our church, and then the, the families of our friends at Westminster as well. Um, uh, very, we feel this. We know this. And I want to say to the uh, lacrosse coach and team, who are joining us today at Gables Campus, that we love you, we're here with you and for you, and uh, you, we're lifting you up. And I also believe I've been told that the Alvarez family, Lucas's family is here, and so please know our love, our prayers, our lift in your life as well. And, um, and thank you for honoring us with your presence today. And for our many other guests that are joining us, we believe that our guests honor us when they come. And we pray God's blessing for you in this experience, even as we tackle one of the difficult. This is, you know, this question never gets old. This is never just a head question for me. I live this in my ministry. And, uh, and every, time I, every time someone passes through the valley of the shadow of death, and I find myself walking with them in my ministry, this question rises. Every time that a loved one within my heart's reach experiences some of the mystery of suffering's agony, this question rises up. You, I ask it. You've asked it. It's not the kind of question that you just fill in the blank with some kind of intellectual answer and it, and it resolves it for it. In my experience, this is the kind of question when it rises, you just live through it. You live through it. Um, in the early brief weeks of this year, 2020, so far, I personally have been connected to seven bereavements and five traumas, okay? This is not a mild turbulence year for me. This is seven deaths of people that I love, that I know, whose families I'm connected with, and five life traumas. This is ministry. I'm feeling this question. 
you know, this is not, these people are not strangers to me. They are people I know and love and care about personally. Some are in my community, some are in my church, some are in my group, some are in my family. Clancy, my wife's sister's daughter, I was privileged to officiate the wedding for Clancy and her husband Morgan earlier this past year. And God blessed them to conceive on their honeymoon. Oh boy. And just two weeks ago, I guess it was two, maybe three now, uh, due to life-threatening complications in her delivery, they had to go in and get little Theodore and uh, through emergency C-section bring him into this world at two pounds, four ounces, 29 weeks. So we got a NICU baby as a parent and a, or a grandparent. These are one of those few moments where you just feel totally helpless, right? And, and you find yourself asking questions about it. Little Theodore delivered at 29 weeks. Others that I've been with are working through tremendous trauma and life stories. Some are, are blindsiding storms of circumstance that nobody saw coming, and yet here they are, and now we're in them. Others are fighting a diagnosis of terminal cancer. I mean, and fighting it, facing it and fighting it. Others are family abandonment, drug addiction, false accusations, and then the dark shadow of that uh, ugly abuse that happened when you were a child that has a way of when you thought it was gone, it just raises its head again. And with it, these questions for me, this is not a hypothetical, philosophical, academic question for me. This is one where I live and I engage with people who are in the midst of the crucible. Why does God allow pain and suffering in the world? I've asked it, you've asked it. Does anybody not ask this question at some point? Why? And it's, that means that it's not just a question that Christians face and, and f- struggle with. This is a question that whether you're a believer or a non-believer, this, the same question rises. Why is there suffering in the world? And you've got to give some kind of answer for it. Like even the non-God types, let's just take God out of the equation. Why is there suffering in the world? Well, some would say it's because of karma. People really believe that karma is an immutable law that is in nature as we know it, which means that whatever you give, that comes back to you. Inescapably. And not only from this life, but from all previous lives. And when it comes back to you, your bad karma locks on and it seals your future fate. You are stuck in stuff from all of your previous lives. Another one, some believe that it's evidence of Darwin's theory. You've studied Darwin, survival of the fittest. This is a bloody dog-eat-dog world in the physicality of nature, and so they say, well, so also in the social life of man. Historians have noted the social Darwinism that was practiced by the Nazis in eugenics and the elimination of the biologically inferior. So why is there suffering in the world? Well, some of it's because people believe other people are inferior and need to die. That doesn't have anything to do with us asking about God today. I'm just saying this is how some people deal with it. Uh, The modern enlightenment says, well, you know what? We could eliminate more suffering if we could just educate more people. 
and then science could bring us the solutions to it. So everybody is trying to struggle with this. Postmodernism is also trying to do it. Millennials are trying to make sense out of this. What do we do with the mess the world is in? How do we make sense out of it? And so some are turning, this is my take on it, so if I'm wrong, please hold me responsible on this. But it looks to me like some are turning to extreme psychological self-definition. All that means is to make sense out of the mess the world is in and my pain and suffering, that I am who I feel I am. That must be the solution. I am who I feel I am, and that's going to take me beyond or through the pain and suffering I'm dealing with, or others as a kind of communal mitigation against the suffering. We can just get the community together digitally and then get the right politic and the right economic framework and the right people in power. And of course, the irony is that whoever is in power, if it's not your right people is considered the cause of the suffering. We're just answering the question, why is there suffering in a world? Well, some people are saying because we don't have the right people in power. And then when you get somebody else in power, their right is now your wrong. So what have we done? We've just continued the pain and suffering with a different power source. Now, like I said, that's my opinion on that, so I could be wrong. But you don't have to believe in God to adopt any of those viewpoints, but what if you're a God-type person? Why does God allow it? Well, several answers here. Maybe God just really doesn't care. Maybe he's aloof. Maybe he's noncommittal. Maybe this whole thought of a loving God is just a fraud that we've made up to make us feel better. Or maybe God does care. It's just he didn't have power. He doesn't have the power enough to show it. Or maybe he's got the power, but he doesn't have the character. You know, so when somebody in power doesn't have character, you're not too eager to trust them, right? So maybe God's just playing games with us. He's arbitrary. He's capricious. He's moody. The ancient Greeks were right. The gods are like us. (laughs) And that's why we have trouble trusting their power, even though we know they're in power. So the gods hold grudges. God holds grudges. God gets even. And so people without God say, now see, that's why I don't believe in God is if God is like that, then no God for me. I don't believe in a God like that. Well, I can tell you from my research, neither does Jesus. I would invite you to make your own research, because I could also be wrong there, but I'm telling you, Jesus doesn't believe in a God like that. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But let me start by saying the Bible is not in denial about our pain and our suffering about what goes on in the world. It actually engages the conversation and invites us into it. In fact, the, the book that's considered the oldest book in the Bible, that would be the one who came first. That means the question that was answered first is this very question, the book of Job, about pain and suffering in the world. And the story of Job is about a good man who suddenly finds himself with a whole lot of bad stuff happening to him. He's a man of faith. He's generous. He's got character. He's a happy family man. And he's wealthy. He's very wealthy. But by chapter 2 in the story, raiders have invaded his uh, corrals and stolen his herds of oxen and donkeys. And then the next thing, a lightning strike starts a fire and it burns up all of his sheep and his shepherds. And then an enemy breaks in and steals all of his camels and kills all of their keepers. And then he gets news 
of this tornado force wind that has caused a house to collapse with all of his children inside. And none of them survive. And if, as if that wasn't enough, I'm telling you, this is the first book written in the Bible, the oldest story asking this question about pain and suffering, as if that wasn't enough. Um, he develops painful sores all over his body. And so in the middle of his misery, his wife says, curse God and die. It's like she's just saying, honey, wouldn't death be better than all this misery? You ever, in the story, here's what we see. It looks like God is violent. God is silent. And God is absent. Does it ever feel like that to you? Then you know part of why the story is in here. It's not a first time it's been asked, the question. And then you know what happens to Job? His friends, his so-called friends, they back a truckload of bad karma up to him and say, this is why. Beep, 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 beep. Uh, this happened to you because you must have done something really bad. You know, and again and again and again, they land on that same thing. This is your fault. Somehow, I know you look like a good guy on the outside, but this, this is really, you must have done something for this kind of bad stuff to cause you to suffer like this. The bottom line of the story, from my understanding, is that it's a story about how life isn't fair. We can all relate to this. That there are times when we just say, life isn't fair. The innocent are suffering. The innocent are suffering. And the mystery of pain and suffering is like threatening to swallow us all up. What do you do in a, t a time like that? Well, in the story of Job, the mystery of suffering is never fully resolved. But here's, what I I, here's how I understand God to do it. God doesn't offer Job an answer for his curiosity question about why. God offers himself as the answer. And says, be with me. And let's do this together. That's my understanding of the book of Job. But that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, in the New Testament, Simon Peter wrote a letter where suffering is the theme of that letter. It's 1 Peter. And, um, and in it, he, he offers perspective for Christian people what, about what God does with suffering when it comes to our lives. Verse one, verse one, I mean, chapter 1, verse 7 of 1 Peter, he says, we suffer grief and trials in ways that prove our faith to be genuine. So sometimes when suffering comes, it just shows that you're the real thing. You know, you're the genuine article. Your faith isn't make-believe. You, you really mean this stuff. You really believe this stuff. So it proves your faith to be genuine. Then he says in chapter uh, 2, verse 20, that sometimes we suffer for doing good. And then he says, and that's commendable. You know, it's better for suffering for doing wrong. To suffer for doing good is better. And God approves you. It's commendable. It's like God is giving you an approval rating that says when you're suffering but you're doing good, then it's commendable before God. 
And then in chapter 3, verse 17, he says, sometimes God uses suffering to correct those who do evil. That uh, he reproves us. He rebukes us. He reproves us. He, he writes our path by bringing us through the attention of that suffering into a better place. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, this is Peter talking, you know, he wasn't a, an armchair theologian. He didn't sit with the scholars and say, let's figure out how many answers we can come up with to the question. He's a wheelchair theologian. He lived through the pain and suffering of his own mistakes and of Jesus' correction. And he writes this letter, and he says, let's not forget this one, that sometimes God uses suffering to improve us. To improve our spiritual lives. He says, uh, he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. You know, so sometimes when our bodies are in pain, temptation loses its power. That ever happened to you? <laughs> Suddenly it doesn't look as good as it used to because you're just paying attention to something else. And Peter says he knows how that works. So when our bodies are in pain, it's an opportunity to say, God, you got to be more to me than that temptation. So here's all I'm saying. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament offer perspective about how God meets us in our pain and what he does with our suffering. But you're probably saying this, aren't you? But neither one of those answer why. <laughs> if that's what God does, well then why? Why does God allow it? Why does God, why this kind of world where that can happen? Why does God allow pain and suffering in my world? And my humble understanding comes down to this, so that we can have a world where love and freedom are real. That's where I am right now. God values human freedom and love, and so he made a world where they can be real. For love to be authentic, freedom must be real. Is that true? So forced love is fake love, right? I found out that Lisa had been held at shotgun point to, to accept my proposal of marriage. When she said, oh, I love you, honey, I might not be wise to believe it. Forced love is fake love. But free, freedom, a free choice. And for people to be truly free, God has given us a world where that could happen. So if I can't say no and have my, mean, my no mean no, then my yes loses its power. That's how I understand this. For people to be truly free, God has given us a world where human freedom is real. And that means that we're free to choose and free to experience the consequences that come with our choices. And I see this is what Paul says in one of his letters, Galatians 6, verse 7. A man reaps what he sows. The seeds you plant is what grows. And the sows... If you sow to your sinful nature, from that nature you're going to reap pain and suffering. Destruction comes from that. But if you sow to please the Spirit, then from the Spirit you will reap more life, eternal life. So, real choices, real consequences, that's part of the answer. So, suffering in the world, suffering is in the world because people make sinful choices that bring painful consequence. But maybe you're also saying, but <laughs> I get that, but why do the innocent suffer? People who don't choose it still suffer. How does that work? 
Well, part of the answer for me is that sin has a splash effect. You ever been standing close enough to the pool when somebody unexpectedly does a cannonball? And you didn't expect to get wet, but oh, they wanted you to get wet, so you sure sure did. Because you were close enough to the splash, and so their choice affected you. That happens in the world, too. Sometimes other people's choices get on you. It's like breathing secondhand smoke. You know, it's not your cigarettes, but you're inhaling downwind, right? Or if a decision was made upstream somewhere from you in time, then its effects are going to be felt downstream through time. We live in that kind of world. And so Paul actually says this, that everybody in human history uh, are feeling the effects of sins that were committed before we were ever born. This is the kind of world we're in. Before this country was ever founded, before human history was ever written, Adam and Eve, our primeval parents, were given freedom to choose so that they could choose freely to respond to God's gift of life and love freely and do life with him or without him. The abuse of freedom would be to say, no, we got this one. And they abuse their freedom, and as a result, Romans 8, verse 20, Paul writes and says, all of creation was subjected to frustration. Not by its own choice. And then came bondage to decay, which means pain and suffering. So part of that frustration and decay includes what philosophers call natural evil. Natural evil is uh, what happens not due to direct human decision, like what? In our world, famine, drought, earthquakes, storms, epidemics, disease, death and pain, and suffering that don't come as a direct result because of somebody's moral choice that's now connected directly to a moral consequence, but because sin has been unleashed in human culture upstream, and now for the 6,000 years that humanity has been around, it's part of the curse that's been brought into our culture. This is Paul's understanding of it. So we live in a world where pain and suffering are larger than individual human choices. Does that make sense? God made a free world, but a truly free world is not one free from suffering. It's one where free choice brings real consequence, which includes suffering. And that's how the Bible story said it came to be. God made a world where love could be real. Remember, God values human freedom and human love. And so freedom and love create the opportunity for pain and suffering. God didn't create pain and suffering. But God made a world where freedom abused could. Hold that thought. Because God values human freedom and love. And what that means is in that kind of world, anybody who chooses to love, loves at risk. And yet it appears God felt it was worth the risk. Just like sometimes today, parents bring children into a world that is full of 
heartache, hardship, adversity, challenge, and still feel like love is worth the risk. God, who values human freedom and love, felt it was worth the risk, which now brings us to Jesus. One day, John's Gospel says, Jesus saw a man born blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It's like they're asking a a good theological question here. Whose moral evil resulted in this obvious consequence? What generational framework was set up in this scenario? Is there some pre-birth karma at work here that we don't see? This man, did he sin before in another way or time? Or, and you know what Jesus says, verse 3, neither, neither. This happened so the work of God might be displayed in his life. Now, this is interesting. Think about it. Jesus does not blame God. He doesn't say, oh, God is whatever. He doesn't blame the parents. They said, is this his parents or is this this the guy? He doesn't even blame the guy. He doesn't say, nope, it wasn't this man. He doesn't shame or blame anybody. Jesus instead says, you know what? He's about to be a part of God's work on display. God didn't cause this. The parents aren't to blame. Congenital disabilities are not, they don't mean pre-birth sin. So what Jesus does, he slices through all the smokescreen of this philosophical moralizing, and he lifts the conversation to another level and says this, God's about to show up through me. And this is the good news. But not just for the guy in the story, but for every person who has ever felt like you're stuck in some pain and suffering and you're looking for an explanation and maybe you're saying it's karma. Jesus is saying, you know what? Karma is no match for God at work in me. Or if you've ever felt like somehow your parents were to blame for your faulty wiring in life. You know, if they just hadn't raised me the way they did, if they hadn't taught why, what they taught me, if they, just, if they had just done something differently, if they, uh, if, because of what they could or couldn't do because of their economic standing in life, you know what? And then look at the world that this whole generation has left us. Have you ever felt stuck that somebody else before you has stiffed you, stuck you? This story's for you. This Jesus has some good news for you. You're not stuck in your pain and suffering. And parent... Maybe you know the sting of something brought into your life because of a child, a disappointment, a struggle, a hardship that has given you pause, maybe even made you feel guilty or reflected upon, did I do something? Am I somehow responsible? Maybe you've even heard other people, you know, talking about, oh, man, they must have done something for this to happen to them, you know, grist for the gossip mill, like the disciples did. And maybe it was the parents. And Jesus says, you know what, (laughs) now that I'm on the scene, we're going to lift this conversation to a whole other level. We're going to take it out of the gossip of blame and shame, and we're going to show you how God intends to work in the face of pain and suffering. Here's Jesus' answer to the question. As I understand it, he doesn't give some kind of hollow answer. He just shows up and is Jesus in the situation. So the answer to to the question is, I'll just be Jesus in this situation. Would you let me be Jesus in the situation? And then he brings healing to the man's eyes and opens everybody's perspective to a larger reality. 
than where they were when they were trying to find solutions, right? Maybe it would be good for Jesus to do that for you today. To help you see that you're not stuck in bad karma or somebody else's decisions that splashed on you and now you just, ah, you know, that somebody else's mistakes somewhere back, somewhere in time, that they're, the pain and the suffering that are now in your experience, Jesus is saying, you know what, you're not stuck there. Would you let me meet you and show you how God can work? So here's what it looks like to me. The wound becomes the way where God shows up. Still doesn't fully answer the why, but in the story, when Jesus gets to be Jesus, and we see this all through Scripture, the wound becomes the way where God shows up. It was with Jacob's limp, that's where it showed up. With Paul's thorn, God showed up. With the Thomas's doubt, and he said, oh, put your hand right there and don't doubt anymore. The wound became the way. And with this blind man's disability, every, could every wound become a way where God could show up? Is that what Jesus is wanting us to, to see? Or maybe let me just ask it this way. Let's forget about everybody else. Could God meet you at your wound and let it become the way to a larger experience of him? Now, of course, that means you have to admit you have a wound. Some of us are raised not to do that. Some of us, our culture has told us, you know, never let them see you sweat. Never admit weakness. Never let them see your wound. What I have witnessed as a pastor is that some of us never even look up until we're flat on our backs. Bam. I don't know if that's true for you. I can say it is for me. No, I got this one. Bam. Maybe not. And then I look up and get to experience God's call on my life. Maybe suffering could be the wake-up call to him in his life. C.S. Lewis said it this way. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience. Talked about that last week. But he shouts to us in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so in Jesus, what we see is that God so values human freedom and love that he enters into the reality and plays by the rules himself. He enters into our reality as a human being so that he can suffer because of love. That's what he said he was suffering for. For God so loved that he gave. That God enters into the pain and the suffering of our lives so that God, this is Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, his love for us, that while we were still sinners, we're doing our own thing, going our own way, Christ goes through pain and suffering for us. So he enters into it so that he can then take us through it and lift us above it. And the, the cool thing about this is that God refuses in the Bible to let pain and suffering have the last word. And so what you discover is that his redeeming grace and his power are such that the darkness that threatens to swallow us at times is now going to be swallowed up in glorious light. So we may live downstream today, but 
For those who were eyewitnesses of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ saw him ascend to the right hand of the throne of God. He promised he was one day going to return. And Paul, laying hold of that promise, said this. Our present sufferings, Romans chapter 8, are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. All of the creation that is now groaning one day is going to be redeemed fully in the presence of God. And on that day, this perishable will put on imperishability. This mortal who dies will put on immortality. And then you're going to hear me say, and death, where is your sting? <laughs> you know, it used to sting me, but no more because I am believed above the height of that. He's elevated the, pre- the conversation to another level. And Revelation t- chapter 22 says that God wants to meet us. He's going to meet us in a garden. He's going to take us back to the garden like the Garden of Eden. And uh, there the river of water is going to be, of life is going to be clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God. And the leaves there will be healing for the nations. Healing for the nations. God wants to bring healing for the nations. And then a loud verse is going to, a loud voice, a loud voice going to be heard on that day saying, God himself is with men and he will be their God and he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more mourning or death or crying or pain for the old order has passed away and the one who sits on the throne says, I'm making everything new. Lord, hasten that day. Would you pray with me? Thank you, God, that you have come to us in Jesus Christ, entered our pain and suffering so that we could see that it's not the end of the story, that you allow us to freely choose, and we choose you. We choose love. And if there can't be a world where there there can't be freedom and love without pain and suffering, then we pray that you would show us how to love well and how to outlove the pain and how to outlove the suffering the way you did on the cross. With our eyes always on you, knowing that the story's not over yet. A friend, where is God saying, trust me? Is it with the wound that you're seeing, that you're feeling today? Could that be the place where you could let God meet you and be with you, not rush you, but care for you and weep with you and let you feel his presence. Gracious God, I pray for someone who is in pain and suffering, who is struggling heartache and hurt, that may this be the day that they feel you as their counselor and their comforter just embraced in your love even in the confusion and the mystery thank you that you came to us the way you did and that you are still with us through your spirit, through your body, through our friends and family 
And now you know what? Maybe somebody is thinking, well, that's a kind of God that I could take a step closer toward. That if God enters into my pain to help me grow through it, then, Lord, I'm not going to take another step without you. You can ask him to do that right now. Come into my life. Make yourself known to me. Forgive my sin. Fill me with your spirit. And lead me as I turn from doing my life my way and learn how to do life your way with you as my leader. In your name I pray. Now our heads still bowed just for a moment. But if you prayed that prayer with me and would let me ask God's blessing upon your next steps of faith, then would you simply raise your hand wherever you're seated, Kendall Campus, likewise our pastors watching and praying and online, church online, our, you can show us right there and we'll join you in prayer. Here I'm seeing hands throughout the room. God bless you. In the middle center to my right, in the front, toward the middle, toward the back. Amen. Amen. Lord, for every person who by uplifted hand is saying, my heart is open and I'm drawing close to you, we pray that they would feel your healing presence, know your saving grace, and the peace that passes human understanding in who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. If you enjoyed the content you saw today, I want to invite you to subscribe, comment, like, and even share it with someone you know. And if you'd like to connect with us a little bit further, I'm leaving our link to the website in the description below. You can connect with us there, find out a location, maybe we're right near you, and find out any upcoming events that we might have. See you soon.